Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're very pleased to welcome to the program today David McCullough, widely acclaimed as a master of the art of narrative history. He joins us to talk about his latest book, The Wright Brothers. David McCullough has twice received the Pulitzer Prize for Truman and John Adams, twice received the National Book Award for The Path Between the Seas and Mornings on Horseback. And his other widely praised books include 1776, The Johnstown Flood, and The Greater Journey. He's the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award. David McCullough is also featured as narrator in many documentary films, including Ken Burns' The Civil War series. David McCullough, pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank you, sir. I'm delighted to be your guest this morning. Uh, So... um, I wonder, what about the Wright brothers? What drew you to the Wright brothers as a subject? I um, was doing a lot of reading for my previous book about young Americans who went to Paris to improve themselves as painters and architects and physicians and so forth. And uh, the book that I wrote called The Greater Journey ends in 1900. But in my reading, I had ventured on into the early part of the 20th century and was astonished to find that Wilbur and Orville Wright, with their sister Catherine, had spent considerable time in France, and then to find that that uh, Wilbur's uh, experimental demonstrations of what they could do up in the air uh, were uh, one of the sensations of the era of that first decade of the 20th century, and that it was only then that the world recognized that man could fly, and, it, and the breakthrough invention had been the work of two bicycle mechanics from uh, Dayton, Ohio. And I, I had known a little bit about them, not much, and but I then began to read about what they were up to in France, and particularly... Uh, their interest beyond aviation in architecture and art and ideas and history and the rest. And uh, wanted to read more, and I read more, and the more I read, the more I realized that this was a phenomenal American story that I wanted to tell. Mm. Uh, and and there, it was the human side of their lives and their struggle to achieve this supposedly impossible accomplishment that interested me most and uh, and the, the family unit that they were part of including their sister Catherine who was infinitely important in what they were doing and has been given in my view far too little credit um, and that I wanted to give credit and their father uh, Bishop Milton Wright uh, whose influence on them growing up in childhood was very far-reaching and very strong and admirable in so many of the qualities that he instilled in them. You've said about Catherine Wright, and I imagine you feel this way about a lot of the people you study. You say you wish you'd known her. You get to I do, live with indeed. these people. I wish I'd love to just talk with her. Um, she, was, she was a character. She was a tiny little woman, about five foot one, and looked just exactly like a school teacher was supposed to look with her hair pulled back in a bun and wearing uh, gold rim pince-nez spectacles. Uh, she taught history, and, uh, excuse me, she taught 
Greek and Latin at the uh, Dayton High School. She was the only one of the of the threesome who went to college. The, the brothers never never even finished high school. Uh, but that to say that is to be very misleading because it, it implies that that they weren't very sufficiently educated. In fact, they were wonderfully educated. Uh, they grew up in a in a household with no running water, no indoor plumbing, no electricity, no telephone, very simply furnished, very uh, small in scale. Um, they had to, the heat from their in their bedrooms upstairs came from downstairs in order to get circulation of what little heat there was. They had to leave all their bedroom doors open. But it was a house full of books. And the father, the minister, uh, insisted not only that they read, but they read quality literature and philosophy and natural history and the classics, uh, poetry of Virgil, Thucydides, Boswell's life of Johnson, everything. And uh, uh, and that they learn how to use the English language not only correctly but effectively, and they did. And as a consequence, their letters, which are voluminous in number and in in uh, content, um, are are a treasure trove of inside understanding of what kind of human beings they are. Were and they're. They, the, just their private family correspondence alone numbers more than a thousand letters, and all have been fortunately saved and securely um, uh, protected by the Library of Congress. Uh, and there are over a thousand of the of the professional letters written by the brothers. So it's a it's a rich deposit, if ever there was, and I. Felt very privileged and excited to work with it. If you just joined us, we're talking with David McCullough, widely acclaimed historian. His latest book is The Wright Brothers. We're live uh, with Mr. McCullough until 9.30. And uh, here's your opportunity to interact uh, with uh, David McCullough. You can call us 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495, your toll-free number. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. Uh, so uh, tell me about Wilbur and, and Orville. Well, they were very close in their lives together. They lived in the same house. They they worked together almost side by side in their bicycle shop. They ate three meals a day together. They they um, looked alike in many ways. Uh, Wilbur was a little bit taller. They sounded so much alike that if they were talking in another room, it was all, almost impossible to tell which one was speaking. Uh, they um, their handwriting was very similar, uh, but there was there were pronounced differences. First of all, Wilbur was the older brother by by almost uh, nearly five years, and he he was the big brother. He was the boss and the leader all through their lives. Uh, Wilbur was also a genius. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, he had a reach of mind that was phenomenal. Orville was very uh, ingenious, uh, particularly mechanically. 
and he was more entrepreneurial than uh, than his brother was. But he, but he was also very shy, and uh, did not like to speak in public. Let Wilbur do all the the ex- explaining of what they were up to, the presentation of his of their ideas before groups of engineers and that sort of thing. And uh, Orville also had what were known in the family as his peculiar spells. He would he was easily uh, in, felt easily insulted or upon he would get sort of sulky and would withdraw into himself in a way that was difficult as long as the until the spell lasted and it didn't usually last very long but um, they had a wonderful sense of humor both of them well all three of them Catherine the sister did too and that humor comes through in what they wrote to each other um, they were all very well-mannered. Their father brought them up to be ladies and gentlemen, and they were their whole life, and to be modest. Uh, no getting too big for their britches for those right brothers and sister. Uh, Wilbur and Orville became as famous as anyone on earth, uh, and it didn't change them one bit. Uh, they were very devoted to their home, to their family, uh, and to their work. They were so they loved their work. Being at work and being having their objective, their mission, their their high purpose was for them their role in life. Neither brother married ever, um, uh, and they they didn't drink. They didn't go out on the town. They they were um, conscientious about the responsibilities they had to achieve something had never been achieved in all of history. And they also didn't rebel against or get hurt feelings when they were ridiculed. They knew that neighbors, friends, thought them very engaging, likable gentlemen, but they also thought they were they were oddballs, they were crackpots. Anybody that said that they were going to go up, fly in the air clearly had a problem. It was just understood by everyone that man can't fly. And uh, they would be mocked and they would be made fun of, but this didn't set them back. They also, I have to emphasize, it wasn't just that they had no college education. They had no technical, mechanical training at all, except what they learned themselves. They learned to make bicycles themselves. They did everything themselves. They had no extra money. All of their experiments with aviation ideas, they were paying for themselves out of what modest profits they had with their bicycle shop. They had no friends in high places. They had no foundation or great university that was backing their experiments. And uh, and that's the way they liked it. That's the way they wanted it. And they were also absolutely confident they could do it. And I have to add one more point. They had phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal courage, because physical courage. Because every time they went up in their early gliders or later when they had their first flying machines, they knew that they were risking their lives, that they could get killed. And as a, as a result, they would never fly together. 
It was always just one or the other, because if one got killed, then the other would still be alive to continue with the mission. Mm. What uh, what problems did they have to, to have to solve? Maybe take me through through that uh, process. It wasn't just strapping an engine on a winged contraption. They had, they had to work through some problems. Well, they had to understand how how you fly with the winds. You ride the winds, and they they studied soaring birds, birds birds that could get up in the air and stay up there without flapping their wings. Uh, vultures and and gulls and hawks, uh, and particularly gannets, when they got to North Carolina Outer Banks. Uh, gannets are huge soaring birds, magnificent birds, with wingspans of five and six feet. And they would watch those birds and imitate them with their arms on the beach. And, of course, the local populace, which was very small and curious, to say the least, thought that they were absolutely crazy because... Here they are out pretending they're, they're birds in the sky. But they did figure it out, and they invented what they called wing warping, which was a way of twisting the ends of the wings so that they could bank and soar and ride the winds exactly as the soaring birds did. And th- this they developed first with gliders, and they built the biggest gliders that anyone had ever built. And they learned how to fly them. It isn't just that they wound up inventing the airplane, that they invented the machine that could fly, but then they learned how to fly it. And uh, this was crucial because many of the other experiment theorists, uh, like Samuel Langley and Octave Chanute, never dared go up in a plane. They just invented what they thought would work and got somebody else to demonstrate whether it would work or not. And um, uh, big difference. And Langley, who spent a small fortune of public money, Smithsonian Institution money, um, his machine, which was much uh, on the, in the public mind, on the public mind uh, looked like a giant insect, and it was launched from the top of a huge houseboat uh, on the Potomac River, just downstream from Washington, and it took off and went up, and then dove right into the wa- into the water, into the river, uh, twice in a row, um, and it was a, t- a, t- a horrible experience for Langley, who was a brilliant and ambitious and thoughtful American scientist, one of the most renowned scientists of his time. Um, but the, the, the cost of all that he did doesn't sound like a great deal today, but it certainly was then. It was $70,000. The right first flying machine that they successfully demonstrated at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in 1903, that cost a total, including all the, the expenses of shipping the plane, crating it up, shipping it to North Carolina from Ohio, all that cost less than a thousand dollars because they did everything themselves. They they built they not only figured out the design of the plane, they built the plane, and then they flew the plane. And they would smash the plane up. Uh, they would have to go back and start all over again. When they found out, for example, that all the data, the 
aeronautical physical physics data that people like Langley and Chanute had been using and that they had been using because that was what was understood to be the the, uh, the realities, uh, the engineering realities, they found out that all that data was wrong. As Orville said, it was worthless. Uh, then what were they to do? And they, they said, well, we'll just have to figure it out ourselves. So the, they then had to build their own wind tunnel and build, uh, create their own little experimental wing shapes to get the camber or the curvature of the upper uh, surface of the wings correct uh, by cutting up little the blades of hacksaws and putting them inside their wind tunnel, which was hitched up to a big fan, and figure out all the physics of it and the data, record all that themselves. And that was a huge job. Uh, and it was far beyond anything being done at MIT or Rensselaer Polytechnic or, or the Smithsonian. And yet it was all being done at home in Dayton in their bicycle shop mm. or at home in their house, their little house on Hawthorne Street. They had to figure out the curvature of a propeller. There was no physics data on, on propellers on ships, let alone propellers to power something to fly in the air. And then they had to build their own motor because... There were no motors available that had sufficient power, but yet were not too heavy to achieve what they wanted. And when they found that no motor manufacturer in the country could supply them with what they needed and turn them down, close the door on them, they thought, well, we'll have to make our own motor. And they had never built a motor in their lives. And they not only built the motor, but they t took the ingenious pioneering step of building the motor out of aluminum. So you see that there were, where there were absolutely essential uh, steps that they had to do, challenges they had to fill, fulfill along the way, even before they cranked up that motor at Kitty Hawk on December seventeenth, nineteen three, and Orville put himself in the pilot's position and took off for the first time. That was very brief and very limited in in uh, distance, to say the least. Lasted all of 12 seconds. He flew all of 120 feet. But the brothers knew then they had done it. And before the day was over, Wilbur had flown well over 500 feet, and and they they realized that, the, that what they had done was succeeding, but. It had a long way to go because they still couldn't bank and, and turn correctly yet. And that was essential to achieve a practical airplane. And that took two more years. And that work was all done in a cow pasture just outside of Dayton, Ohio, called Huffman Prairie, which is still there because it's been preserved as part of the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base there. And it's a very moving thing to go out to that cow pasture. Uh, we were there just yesterday. And stand there and realize this is where it all happened. Hmm. Yeah. A, 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 create, a man-made creation, an invention, a, 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 an expression of the human 
one intellect that changed history, changed the world. Um, and we take it all for granted today. Uh, and we, it's, it's beholden on us, I think, and particularly as Americans, to know about these people. Uh, they're, they're as important to, the, to our history, they're as important to the history of mankind, and, and we, out of simple uh, respect, ought to know who they were and how they did it. But the more I've studied their lives, the more I felt that even if they had not succeeded, I would have wanted to write a book about them. So admirable are their, uh, is there, it was their resolution in the face of one defeat, one failure after another. They would not give up. And they would not blame other people when, other th- when things went wrong. They would not lapse into spells of self-pity. None of that. And they always learned from their mistakes. And that's how you make progress. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us on Access Utah today, we are talking with acclaimed historian David McCullough. His latest book is The Wright Brothers. You're welcome to join us here. We have him for another 10 minutes. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Next question, Mr. McCullough. A supporter of the Wright brothers compared their achievement to that of Christopher Columbus. Do you think that's appropriate? Yes, sir. I certainly do. It was not just a physical adventure, and it was tremendously uh, exciting physical story, adventure story, but it was an intellectual adventure. And uh, I think it's terribly reassuring to uh, be reminded that the advantages that we think are so essential to having a chance in life uh, are not necessarily essential at all. Uh, Will Will Orville Wright later on um, was asked by a reporter, uh, this is after they had not only achieved flight, but were world famous. Uh, he said, would you agree, Mr. Wright, that as so many Americans feel, that you and your brother were perfect examples of how far an American can succeed in life, uh, but who had grown up with no advantages? And he said, oh, no, no, that's not, that's not true. Uh, we had the most marvelous advantage anybody could ever have. We grew up in a household that believed in and encouraged intellectual curiosity. And the very modest way that they were raised and very modest circumstances of their home and their their, uh, uh, lack of of material wealth and all that was not important. And, and nor the fact that they never went to college because they were so excited and so reading so much and always wanting to learn more. Uh, 
inspired. They were inspired. And they had this life purpose. And they were happy. And they were never happier than they were when they were working. And they were never particularly never happy when they were working in all the adverse environment uh, at Kitty Hawk, where the terrible rainstorms and and flooding and mosquito attacks and and crashing and and uh, damaging their plane, but also hurting themselves. They were. They look back on that experimental time under the most uh, primitive conditions as the happiest time of their life. Uh, it was getting there. It was climbing the mountain that they loved, not getting to the top of the mountain. Now, Orville, Orville lived till 1948. He, he lived to see jet propulsion and rockets. Oh, he lived to see the First and Second World Wars and all the horrors that their airplane invention had brought upon mankind. And he, he's, Wilbur died much too young in, 19, in his 40s in 1912. But... Um, uh, so he never saw the, their invention used as a weapon. Um, he never lived to see that. Uh, and Orville said that it it was a terribly heartbreaking thing for him and would have been for Wilbur no less. But he said it was also like the invention, invention of fire. You can use it for good or evil. And, um, and that they didn't, he didn't feel uh, responsible uh, for the for the death that the airplane brought and the horrible destruction that it, it meant as a weapon. He, he, he did die in 1948. We think of back in 1903 or 1905, so a long time ago, and oh, that was the olden days. That was way, way back. And that's understandable. But as history goes, it's nothing. Blink of the eye. Uh, and I, I was 15 years old in 1948, so if I'd grown up in Dayton, Ohio, in the same neighborhood, I might well be able to tell you about that nice old gentleman, Mr. Wright, who lived around the corner. Um, so it's not all that long ago. And yet the world is totally changed. This, <laughs> this summer it's estimated 222 million people will fly just in commercial airlines. 222 million. And we, uh, all of us taking it for granted. And, yeah. and going up at 35,000, 40,000 <laughs> feet comfortably. Yeah, I think that's the that's the way it goes, isn't it? I wonder, uh, um, just here at the end, just to have a couple minutes left, uh, I'm curious, uh, what, uh, what do you think the job, your job, as a writer of history, what's, what's your goal, what's, what's your job, do you think? Well, it's a, there's a multitude of, of objectives and missions that I feel I have, but one of them is to bring those extraordinary people of our American past to life again, and particularly to give credit to those where for whom credit is long overdue, um, and to convey the reality or the truth that uh, history is not just all about politics and war. Yes, a great part of it is about politics and war, but there is also much, much more in the realm of the creativity of the human mind and the human spirit. 
in medicine, art, invention, engineering, uh, music, poetry. It's and much that of that achievement is in the long run as important or more important than the politics and war side of it. So, I, for example, I look upon this book uh, as the third book in a trilogy about high accomplishment uh, done achieved by Americans, uh, all within a relatively short but very innovative time, who took on a subject, an objective that was thought impossible and that involved great risk and indeed the loss of life and succeeded against all, all adversities, odds, and predictions and so forth. The building of the Brooklyn Bridge and the successful creation of a Panama Canal. And I hope that those three will stand as examples and and uh, expressions of the American story of the utmost importance. Uh, just one one more question at the end here. You you write American history, of course, and I wonder, you know, having having spent a, a career doing that, I wonder, can can you distill, you know, a brief uh, sentence or paragraph the what's essential about the American character, the American experience? The reality of unprecedented possibilities that were available to the first free society and that uh, never lost sight of the importance of the human in, in, uh, in the composition of a way of life and, and a, a spirit or purpose in a community. Our founding um, document, the the, uh, Declaration of Independence, begins when in the course of human events. And the operative word there is human. Uh, History is human. It's about people. And our particular American history is, is a treasure chest of story and and it all happened in again as history goes a relatively brief time and it represents peoples from everywhere on earth we are we are the uh, amalgam the uh, the uh, gathering place of all peoples now it's taken us a while to give equal opportunity to all people but we've always had that objective we've had that goal and we haven't given up on it we're still at work on it we have reached the end of our time with david mccullough he of course is acclaimed author of 1776 and the greater journey john adams truman many other books the latest is the wright brothers which is now out david mccullough a great pleasure to speak with you thank you thank so much thank you very very much sir i appreciate the chance to be with you. Thank you. 
And uh, we are going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll uh, turn to another acclaimed historian that I've had the pleasure to uh, speak with. We'll uh, talk with Doris Kearns Goodwin. We'll revisit our conversation uh, that we had with her um, on the occasion of the release of Ken Burns' film, The Roosevelt's More, following the break. The great conservationist John Muir had a harsh father and a tough life, but that may have had hidden benefits. It was so rough, but it possibly had a lot to do with why he ended up seeking a sanctuary in nature and why he was able to be so resilient. Celebrating John Muir in music. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. My father believed any man that needed a vacation should get a different job. For him, those 110 acres was the whole world. He needed nothing else. Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of the Public Radio Oral History Project, StoryCorps. Remember an important person in your life when our mobile recording booth comes to town. Join us in July at the Uinta County Library in Vernal. Utah Public Radio will begin taking reservations on June 18th. Details at upr.org. Did you know that men are much more willing to take financial risk than their wives? But fighting about it doesn't do much good. Instead, review your investments together at least once a year and make sure that your portfolios balance each other out. This will lead to healthier finances. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And we turn next to another preeminent American historian had the pleasure to uh, speak with Doris Kearns Goodwin a couple of times. We're going to revisit a portion of conversation, the latest conversation, with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, she's the author of several books, including The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and The Golden Age of Journalism, No Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Home Front in World War II, Team of Rivals, Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln, and others. Uh, she's one of the experts featured in Ken Burns' documentary, The Roosevelts, which I think is uh, being aired in repeats uh, recently. Uh, I spoke with her on the occasion of its uh, premiere. The Roosevelt's weaves the stories of Theodore, Franklin, and Eleanor, three members of one of the most prominent and influential families in American politics. We'll visit a portion of that conversation now. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you so much for joining us again on Access Utah. Oh, I'm glad to be back with you. Thank you. You have written on... Um, on Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. The latest book is on Theodore uh, Roosevelt and his uh, his protege, uh, William Howard Taft. You've written on LBJ. How do you choose your projects? Well, the most important thing for me when I decide where I'm going to start working is I want to live with that person for a long period of time because I know it's going to take me years. It took me seven years to do Teddy Roosevelt and Taft, six years Franklin and Eleanor, ten years Lincoln, I couldn't write about Hitler or Stalin. I want to wake up with this person in the morning. I want to think about them when I go to bed at night. So it has to be somebody I know I basically will respect and feel affection for. And I also want to live in a period of time that seems to me like a dramatic era. So clearly the Civil War was that, the Depression and the New Deal, and the Progressive Era at the turn of the 20th century. And then once I get the person, like in this case, once I got Teddy Roosevelt as the person I wanted to do, 
because so much good had been written about him, per se, I have to figure out my own angle, as I did with Team of Rivals. What can I produce that might give a little freshness to the story? And that's how William Howard Taft and the journalists came floating in. Doris Kearns Goodwill here. We have her for the hour. We'll talk a little bit about the relevance of, of history. And it, as evidence, um, you, you're in, uh, in demand on, on you know, the talk show circuit, uh, talking about issues of today. Ken Burns is uh, quoted as saying uh, that uh, biography and history is important to understand the people, these particular people, as a vessel through which to understand a particular age. Do, do you have that same view? Oh, without a question. In fact, I think that by studying, I have to believe this because I have such passion for history, but I think if we study the struggles and the triumphs of the people who lived before us, there's definitely lessons we can learn. I mean, underlying all the books that I suppose that I've written is leadership. You know, what was it that allowed Theodore Roosevelt to communicate so well to his countrymen? Short, punchy language that somehow made him seem like he was talking directly to people, not his Harvard buddies. What was it that made Franklin Roosevelt so able to communicate? That voice on the radio that made people feel that he was in their living rooms when he was speaking to them. You know, what was it about their ability to get around the country and really stay close to the people through the whistle-stop train tours? All of these things I think leaders of today can learn from the attributes of the people who were some of our best presidents, because leadership can be developed. I, I really believe that. It's not just something you're born with. So by looking at these people and even seeing through their errors what they screwed up, why did they screw up, we can learn that as individuals as well as as countrymen. Seems like when, when I turn to history, one of the impulses that I have is to get behind the, behind the icon, sort of the, you know, the, the face on Mount Rushmore. Uh, I want to learn about these people because they've had an effect. For example, uh, FDR, I felt like I grew up with FDR. My father was a young man during the Depression, revered FDR, felt like he had helped him personally. On the other hand, some of my father's friends were died in the wool conservatives. FDR was everything that's wrong about the country, you know, activist <laughs> government. Uh, so you had this icon. I don't know if you get that reaction. People want to get behind that icon. Oh, without, I mean, that's really what you hope. By reading enough diaries, by reading letters, by going back to the people who, just as you say, there were people who tuned into his radio shows and they would do nothing else but come home. A construction worker said, I've got to get there because he's talking to me, so I have to be home in time, whereas the people who hated him would throw the radios out of the window <laughs> because they didn't even want to hear the voice. So you have to try and understand what produced such passions at that time on the part of the people toward this leader. And not only that, but all of these leaders have their own strengths and their flaws, like all of us human beings do. So, you know, the, the relationship between Franklin and Eleanor and his betraying her with an affair with Lucy Mercer, it saddened me when I was writing about it. My kids would te tease me that they'd come in and listen to me, and I'd be saying, oh, Franklin, why did you have to do this? Or Eleanor, <laughs> forgive him. It's many years later. <laughs> or similarly with Teddy and Taft. You know, it just so made me sad that that long friendship ruptures in 1912, and I had wished that Teddy had waited until 1916 to run for president, but he couldn't wait. He wanted to be it again so much. So they all have things that disappoint you, but basically the ones I choose, I'm going to feel good about them most of the time, which is why it's such a pleasure to write about them. I wonder about parallels. We'll get into talking about specific personalities, and these people are larger than life and, uh, and had a great impact on us. As I was remembering, thinking back about FDR and Eleanor, specifically with regard to Lucy Mercer and the, the affair, and um, I, I kept thinking about the Clintons. 
Me too. I mean, I think what happened with Lucy Mercer when Eleanor discovered a packet of love letters from Lucy to her husband, she said the bottom dropped out of her world, but then on the other hand, she then forged an independent path that she might not have forged before. She went out of the house to find her fulfillment, became involved with women activists who were fighting for child labor regulations for minimum wage and maximum hours. She learned she had a whole range of talent she never knew she had before. And I think for Hillary Clinton, too, even though she'd been an active force right up to the time of Monica Lewinsky, somehow that, that, that situation, I think, forced her even into a more independent path. She ran for the Senate. She ran for the presidency on her own and now, indeed, might do it again. So sometimes these, these moments of sorrow can produce strength in a person. And, in fact, in almost all the presidents I've studied, they've been tested by adversity and come through it with perseverance and resilience. It's one of the traits that I think is, is so important for a leader. And I think Eleanor and Hillary had that similar pattern that they had to go through. Yeah, and I want to get into talking about that. I think that is a, and I was reading an interview that you gave where you, where you pointed that out. And then I was thinking you could expand that you know, to many other leaders, you know, Lincoln, Churchill. Um, it seems to be a, a common pattern. Uh, but I wanted to uh, t- talk about the... Um, one of the differences between, you know, the personal lives of the Roosevelts versus the personal lives of the Clintons, that's a difference in press, and, and some things were kept private where they're not today. Um, and so FDR's affair, I don't think, was, would have been commonly known through, you know, throughout the country. No, there's no question about that. I mean, there seemed to be in the old days an understanding on the part of the press that the private lives of our public figures were relevant only as they affected their direct responsibilities. So that even though they knew about some of Roosevelt's relationships, they knew that he was paralyzed from the waist down and that he couldn't really walk on his own power. There was an honor code among the press not to show him with his wheelchair or his braces. Or similarly, going back to Teddy Roosevelt's time, it would be unimaginable today, I think, that reporters could have such a close relationship with the president. He had them for lunch and dinner. He had them over during his barber's hour when he was being shaved. They went to his house at Sagamore Hill, but they felt free to criticize him, and he felt free to criticize them. So their integrity was preserved, as was his. I mean, my favorite story has to do with when one of these journalists wrote a review of his memoir about the Rough Riders, and he said that Teddy so placed himself in the center of every action in it that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba, as if he'd been the only one there. <laughs> right. Instead of getting angry, he writes back and he said, my fa- I regret to tell you that my wife and my children have adored your review of my book, and now you must owe me something. I want you to visit me the next time you come. I've long wanted to make your acquaintance. And they became friends, even as this humorist could continue to criticize him. The relationship between reporters and the press today and the president's is so much more at loggerheads, and I think it's in part because these private lives have now become public fodder, so the presidents are much more cherry about being close to reporters. Hmm. And, and I think FDR probably doesn't get elected, if it's widely known how, how handicapped he was. It's very interesting. That's the decision he made. I mean, you'd like to believe that, certainly in today's world, it would not be a handicap, but rather be a badge of honor that he had come back from this terrible, uh, difficult time of trying to walk on his own power again for years and not being able to do it. But at the time, he felt that the country wouldn't accept a person who was not fully able to walk and maneuver. And so that honor code was kept really for most of that time. 
And yes, that's true. I mean, I we'll never know what they would have done had they known. But it, it was his judgment, and he's the politician, so he probably knew his people mm. that they would not have elected him had they known. Let's get into some of these personalities. These are larger-than-life folks. Um, it, let's hear from uh, Ken Burns' documentary. This is talking about Theodore Roosevelt. You think of Jefferson as America's Renaissance man, but it's really Roosevelt. He would not stop talking. He was a one-man gas bag. But it was so interesting that most people didn't mind. One of my favorite stories is that he heard that there was a famous big game hunter in Washington. And he said to some of the people on the staff, get that man over here, I'd really like to meet him. So this big strapping English fellow was taken into the president's office and the door was closed and people outside the office heard this talking going on. Finally, the man emerged about an hour and a half later looking just beat down to, as though he'd been through a storm. And one of the president's staff said, what did you tell the president? He said, I told him my name. We love him because of the energy. His laugh was infectious. His son Ted said, my father had a dozen eggs for breakfast every morning. So he's a large man, and he's larger than life. Roosevelt once said, there's nothing quite so exhilarating as being thrown over the shoulders of a 300-pound Japanese man. So I love that line, what What did you tell the president? I told him my name. The, the rest of it was Theodore, you know, talking at him, I guess, or to him. And, and entertaining him. I mean, I think that's the point. I mean, the extraordinary thing about Theodore Roosevelt was that he had so many interests. I mean, he read books every day. He might read two or three books. He wrote 40 books. He was a bird birder. He hunted wild game. He loved to ride horseback. He loved to box, to wrestle, play tennis. Um, he had this game every afternoon where he'd take people on a walk in Rock Creek Park. And the deal was you couldn't go around any obstacle. You had to go through it point to point. So if you came to a rock, you had to climb it. If you came to a precipice, you had to go down it. And then finally, there's one great story where he takes a French ambassador on one of these rambles in the afternoon. And the guy's so excited, he has a, his top hat on and his silk coat, finds himself in the woods, climbing rocks, going down precipices. They finally come to a broad river. He says, thank God it's over, until he hears Teddy say, we better take off our clothes so as not to get them wet. And so he says, oh, God, for the honor of France, I'll, I will strip. They get to the other side, and he has lavender kid gloves on. And Teddy says, what's that? So, well, you never can tell. You might meet ladies on the other side. So this multifaceted, interesting character, somebody said about him, a British Viscount came to America and said he'd seen only two forces of nature in America, Niagara Falls and Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> and I guess that's, that explains in part why he couldn't wait till 1916. He, he think, just wanted to be president again. Right. He loved being at the center of attention. And he gloried in it, and he found joy in it. And outside of it, he felt like half a person. So he then decides to run against his friend Taft in 1912. Now, so he really enjoyed being president. Uh, and you see, the, you see these famous photographs of recent presidents uh, before and after, either four or eight years. And the you know, other, they got gray hair. It seems like they've aged a lifetime um, sort of a, you know, I, there must be some good parts still, but I, I wonder if things have changed fundamentally about being president. I, I think they may have, because I think that clearly there were difficulties that all these presidents faced. I mean, you think about FDR having to go through the Depression and World War II and Teddy Roosevelt, that whole 
impact of the Industrial Revolution. And yet Teddy would say, I can't wait to get to my desk every morning. And Franklin Roosevelt was once asked, why would anyone want to be president when there are all these difficult decisions you have to make? And he said, what do you mean? Anybody would want to be president. It's the greatest job in the world. It's a temperamental thing, I think, to love being at the center, to love making decisions, to enjoy people and the whole versatility of your experience. They all got out on the road like Teddy loved being in those whistle-stop train tours going around the country weeks at an end on the fall and the spring, stopping at village stations, waving to everybody. I mean, there's one moment when he's waving to a group of people and he's so upset they haven't waved back until he hears that they were a herd of cows <laughs> that he thought were, were, were people. And, but still, that uh, you worry. I think you're right. When you look at the recent president's faces or even watching their presidencies, I'm sure there are great moments when pieces of legislation pass that give them joy. But the experience itself doesn't seem to be as full of, maybe it's the temperament of the people we've had in there, or maybe it's the experience of the presidency, and maybe it's the relationship with the press, and maybe it's the country. There's a whole bunch of things that doesn't make it seem quite as, as, as full of energy as it did for these people in the past. I wonder if it if it take, take took then and still takes now an outsized ego to even think about, well, I can save the country. I'm thinking of... Uh, there's an interchange between the Romneys, uh, Mitt and, and his wife. And uh, Mrs. Romney at the breakfast table asks Mitt, can you save this country? And he says, yes, I can, and off off they go. And part of that's, of course, cr- trying to create the mythology for the campaign. But it it, it kind of struck me as anybody even thinking about running for the president then or now has to have maybe a bigger ego than, than you and me. I think that's right. I mean, I think the key thing is you need that self-confidence. You need that self-esteem. And yet there's a fine line between it and the lack of humility and then what can lead to hubris. I mean, that's why Lincoln was so special. I mean, he had such deep self-confidence that you might not have known because he seemed so humble. But underneath, he really thought he was the best man to be president during that difficult time of the Civil War. And yet when people were around him, it's not like he was pushing himself on people. He understood how to deal with them. But that's a really important thing. I don't think you can run for president today given what you have to go through and all the hurdles, even more than in the past when you could be named at a convention and then run for two months without having an outsized ego. So the question is, can you stay grounded with that ego? And that's why some of these presidents, you have to find out ways that they can just remember who they were before they became president. Roosevelt, Teddy would go home to Sagamore Hill and his wife could ground him. FDR would go to Hyde Park and remember what it was like when he was young before he was president. They need to have those people around them that can still connect to them prior to this, or else sometimes that ego goes beyond control. Doris Kearns Goodwin is my guest, and she is featured in Ken Burns' new documentary. She's author of uh, several books, A Team of Rivals, um, about Lincoln. Uh, Her latest book is The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. I want to talk, uh, Doris Kurtz Goodwin, about this uh, this idea that you brought up of uh, a theme of personal sadness, a tragedy marking each of these people's lives and, and how maybe that enhanced a drive maybe they, they had already or, or produced that, that drive. So with Theodore Roosevelt, he, he had this uh, tragic death of his, his wife, who apparently he adored, uh, early on. I think you're right. I think there's got to be something in these people, maybe from early on, some ambition or some desire or some interest in, in in being a leader, whether it's of a small circle or a larger circle, but then often the ones I've studied 
adversity has touched them, they came out stronger, and then it gives them something to look back on when things get tough later. I mean, for example, when Teddy Roosevelt's wife died and he said the light had gone out of his life, he thought he would never marry again. He was so depressed he went to the Badlands where he became a rancher and a cowboy for a period of time and just rode his horse 20 hours a day, and he said constant activity prevented overthought. And he finally came through that depression, came back and actually married his old girlfriend, Edith Roosevelt, and had a very joyous marriage. But most importantly, he said, when I've seen as a young person sorrow so deep and joy so keen, I'm not going to let myself get so upset about losing an election. So I think it does give you perspective, just as Franklin Roosevelt's polio after that, people said that he now understood what it was like for other people for whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. And one of the things Eleanor said later, anyone who's been through great suffering can connect to people in a different way. And if he's taken years to try and move his toe, somehow he'll have the strength to get through the crisis of the Depression or later the war. So FDR, that's interesting. Uh, he said that he felt like this had produced maybe an empathy that he wouldn't have had. Do you think that would have changed his policies? He'd been a different president? I don't know if it would have changed his policies, but there, because he always liked people. So the greater connection that he would have had with all sorts of people probably would have gotten into him. But the people around him, like Francis Perkins, his secretary of labor, said that he really did become a deeper person as a result of this. And he, did, he was able to look at people. Like when he went to Warm Springs, which he opened up for a lot of other polio victims, he was meeting people of all different classes there and really connecting to them, not just seeing them on a campaign trail, but with them day after day after day. And I think somehow it did, he had come from a very elite background, and it did allow him to see things from other people's eyes. And then when we have a paralyzed group of people during the Depression, he can identify with them in a way that perhaps from that charmed life, he might have had more, more difficulty. Maybe he would have done it anyway, but it might have not, might have not been as, as intuitive as it was. Doris Kearns Goodwin has been my guest. Uh, she is featured in uh, Ken Burns' new documentary. It's called The Roosevelt's An Intimate History. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, it's been, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I hope we can do this again. I oh, really enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. Anytime. Anytime. Sincerely. Deal. Thank okay. You. <laughs> Take care. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for uh, being with us. And. Uh, across uh, two items off my bucket list, being able to talk with David McCullough and Doris Kearns Goodwin. Hope you enjoyed those conversations, and that'll be up on our website, of course, a little later today. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, um, we'll talk about sandhill cranes. You may or may not be familiar with these magnificent birds. They're some of the best-known and loved birds in the United States. Their tall stature and echoing calls combined with their close association with agricultural fields, makes them easy to locate and instantly recognizable. But there is far more to cranes than meets the eye. These magnificent birds have been a part of the North American landscape for more than 9 million years. They've also inspired a documentary film called Mating for Life, which focuses on a personal pilgrimage by the filmmaker Cindy Stilwell to witness the annual spring migration of the Sandhill Cranes. She sees in the cranes a metaphor for human transformation, Mating for Life is a meditation on nature and art. It poses essential questions about our need for both connection and solitude. We'll talk with Cindy Stilwell and with crane expert Paul Tebble on the program tomorrow ahead of the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival, which is Friday and Saturday in Logan. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. 
We Americans protect our freedom of speech and freedom of religion, even when it's offensive or wrong. Our path to that freedom was not pretty. We brought diseases, killed native people, took their land, and destroyed villages. We turned on people unlike ourselves when we were scared or stressed. Awful things occurred when uncertainty and distrust crowded out understanding and common sense. Most years, I try to visit three Utah sites where evidence of such awful events are still visible. The Bear River Massacre site, northwest of Preston, Idaho, is where our nation's largest single slaughter of Native Americans occurred. The ruins of the Topaz War Relocation Center is where some 9,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned in World War II. Their only crime was being Americans of Japanese descent. And the Mountain Meadows Massacre site, southwest of Cedar City, is where about 120 men, women, and children of a wagon train were killed by local Mormons and or Indians in 1857. My pilgrimages are not to criticize nor attempt to understand why ordinary people do such awful things to fellow human beings. I go not to gather facts. There are dozens of publications by recognized scholars on each of those events. I go to remind myself that good, well-meaning people can make horrible choices when faced with fear of people they do not understand. Fear alone might cause one to kill an armed adult, but to kill children and the women who nurse them is beyond my imagination. Paleontologists have found evidence of maiming and killing of humans in the earliest civilizations. Perhaps that's natural for humans. Maybe nothing on my pilgrimage will help me understand why humans kill others they do not understand. But it's worth a try. This is Thad Box. This is Terry Guy, Business Development Manager for Utah Public Radio. Underwriting Public Radio enhances a corporate image and projects quality, credibility, and stability. Separate your organization from the competition and reach a quality audience. To include UPR in your branding campaign, call 435-797-3215. Hi, this is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to come explore the world of Robert Schumann with me. Schumann, who in his brief 46 years on this planet, gave us some of the most intimate and romantic music ever imagined. We'll also meet the fascinating cast of characters who called Schumann their friend, Felix Mendelssohn, Friedrich Chopin, and the extraordinary pianist and composer Clara Wieck, who became the love of Schumann's life. This week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.